We have marketplaces because they allow exchanges to happen more quickly. They bring people in. They make the discovery of products and prices a lot easier. At the end of the day, they have beneficial outcomes for everybody participating. We could still do business without organized marketplaces, but things would be harder. The bigger an economy gets and the larger the amount of money that moves, the larger the amount of goods and services that are on offer, the better it is to have organized marketplaces through which people can meet and do things. But because so much of the volume of economic activity passes through these things, somebody needs to be involved to make sure that things operate appropriately and they're secure. Hence, the role of the state in intervening in the operation of marketplaces, primarily to ensure that there's a level playing field that people don't get unfair advantages by either doing dodgy things or the people who have higher power to begin with don't abuse everybody else and inhibit the development of a free market. So the, the key ideas behind the marketplace is that you have the ability for people to meet and exchange, but also there's an attempt at a level playing field that everybody has the same opportunity to participate in this market. And they're not kind of elbowed out of the way by somebody who's more powerful or already established. So the role of the law is both to promote competition within these marketplaces, but also to ensure that minimum standards are met so the scammers and everybody else is kept out of the way. Any sort of interaction will attract first the scammers and then everybody else. It's shocking. Like, I don't know, if you guys participate in kind of Facebook groups or anything like this, like 80% of, of the action on Facebook is scammers and bots. About 20% are real people and, you know, kind of 1% of, of these people might actually actively engage with what's happening. It, it's an incredible, it's like a scam machine and the rest of social media is pretty much the same. The vast majority of what happens online is kind of automated uh, posting and scammers. And because there's such potential for abuse, you need somebody to keep, be keeping an eye on. Now, what I would like to do today is go a little bit, dif a little bit deeper in, the, in our understanding of how the economy works and how money works. And we touched upon in other contexts some discussions on what money and credit and liquidity does, but I think this is important enough for us to spend a little bit more time trying to understand it. Because an understanding of how money flows and expresses itself as concepts of value in all these marketplaces then informs what the role of law is in all of this. Now, why do we ascribe value? This paper note was good money up until, you know, a couple of years ago. It hasn't physically changed. It's just that the way we perceive it has changed. And I think this tells you something about how we understand concepts of money and value. There are a lot of things that are considered valuable because they might be personally interesting to you, but not to anybody else. And there are a lot of other things that either as a society we accepted that they are of value, or the law says that they, they're perceived to be valuable and people have to accept them as payment. Does everybody take credit card payments? In certain countries, the shop can choose the means of payment. So they can say you can pay by cash, you can pay by credit card, you can pay by check. But in most countries, this is at the discretion of the shop. So they can say, we do not accept checks or from the 
types of credit cards available. We don't accept all of them. For instance, nobody accepts uh, American Express because I think the charges are too high, so the shops don't want to deal with them. They could say we only take cash. The law in most countries will allow the shops to make that choice. But what is against the law is to charge differently depending on the means of payment. So you cannot tell the customer that this coffee is two pounds if you pay cash and three pounds if you pay by credit card. That, at least in Europe, is not allowed. Why? It's because the state wants to promote use of plastic because it's more difficult to tax evade if everybody's paying with electronic means of payment. If you're using cash, very often uh, you might do an under-the-table transaction that will not appear, will not be obvious to the, to the tax authority. Now, I don't know where you guys come from, but where I come from, most of the time, there were two prices. There was the price that was on the product that you would pay, and then they would take the money, put it in the till, and give you a receipt. And there was also the price that was revealed if you ask, how much for that if you don't give me the receipt? Because if they, if they didn't give you the tax receipt, then effectively they would split the VAT. So they would earn because they would not declare that income, and they would give you a discount to participate in that transaction, which is, of course, illegal. Because in a retail setting, you're not allowed to do these things, do these transactions without giving a receipt. But this was very common. So because this was very common and it still remains very common, it just shows how transactions take place. And it might explain the incentives of the legislator when saying shops can accept forms of payment in these formats or they can discriminate between different forms of payment or there can be charges and fees with different forms of payment. Now, the idea that the shop is obligated by law to accept cash and credit uh, payments with the, same, uh, with the same value for the customer is a problem because the shop actually has transaction costs for credit cards. Because the shop pays a commission for every credit transaction, they also probably need to pay to get the machine that reads the cards and so on. So, it, it passes on the burden of this facilitation onto the shop. The state thinks it's a good idea because then all transactions are recorded adequately for tax purposes. Uh, the customer is a, for the customer, it's a good idea because it makes things easier. Uh, but for the shop, there's something in there, which usually reflects itself in the pricing of the products. What I'm trying to say here is that if there was no obligation and they allowed cash transactions, maybe prices would be somewhat lower. But the, the danger for the state is that then it pushes a great deal of activity to non-declared income and then you have a problem. But this demonstrates how our understanding of value and payment is dynamic. So a banknote that you have today might not be the same value or might not be usable tomorrow. For more direct ways as well, it could be that the government devalues the currency. If either the currency loses on its own in exchange rate markets, which means that the value of the currency that you hold fluctuates all the time, if what you need to buy comes from overseas, or if the expenses that you have come from overseas, then you're very exposed to exchange rates. So the Turkish currency has dropped, uh, the Lebanese currency has dropped. There are many places in the world where they've had exchange rate shocks. 
uh, the pound hasn't been doing very well. And this affects you if you have to pay your fees here, you have to pay accommodation, and you're changing from your local currency to, to sterling. Uh, when I came here, you had 300 and something drachma to the pound. Before I even had the chance to go back for Christmas, the currency had uh, collapsed. So then suddenly there was 550 drachmas to the pound. So suddenly the CDs were cheaper in Greece. So And that really made a difference. I mean, I lost 20% of the value of the money that I had from like in a couple of days. So this stuff can be important. But again, it demonstrates that the, these concepts are fluctuating. As we have discussed in the past as well, Maybe, depending on the sort of business that you're in, the value itself, the number does not matter. What matters is your ability to finance this by allowing, by people being confident enough to give you loans. And this is how the state finances and big business finances differ from personal finances. Your money, your income or your support money is fairly static. Your expenses are fairly static. And it's not financed by you borrowing. Most of the time it's financed by somebody sending you more money or getting a job and generating some more money that way. This limited amount of credit that is offered to students, especially international students, I don't think even qualify for an overdraft. So on a personal level, the way personal finances work, you don't really have freedom to borrow money. And the way that you live your lives and the way that you address your expenditure is not determined by credit or the cost of credit. It's mostly determined by money that you've got already. Your credit would come either from an overdraft or if you're using a, a credit card, then you don't repay the whole balance and then you pay in installments. Or if you go to a shop, they offer you credit at the point of purchase. When it says you order some clothes, because, you know, you want, you're a big spender. So you were going to spend five pounds for like a truckload of clothes from Shine. But then you thought, what the hell? Let's get two truckloads of clothes. And at the till, it says, would you like to pay your 10 pounds straight off? Or would you like to pay with some sort of installment scheme? So this is another type of credit that is given for small transactions at the retail level. Klarna, for instance, have you come across Klarna? It's one of these uh, facilitators that do this sort of thing. PayPal can give you credit as well if you want to repay in installments. You know what this is called? It's called a terrible idea. Why is it a terrible idea? Because if you miss any of those payments because you forgot, so like you bought something that's 50 pounds and then you're paying two pounds a month for the next like 150 million years. So don't do it because the interest rate on this is high. So you actually end up paying a lot more than it's worth. But the problem doesn't come from this. The problem comes that you changed accounts and you forgot to transfer the direct debit or something. Then you have a missed payment. That in itself destroys your credit record. So there are people who haven't been able to do anything for years because they've got a couple of kind of 10 pound payments bounce off one of these things. So it's easy when you're buying a coat and you're thinking, well, why should I fork out like 300 pounds like this? I can, if I can pay some installments, it's probably nicer. But then you run the risk of some minor error with these transactions ruining your credit record forever. So don't do it. For business and for the state finances, credit is more important than money in the bank. If you can borrow at low rates or if you can refinance your uh, loans at low rates, 
you have this availability of money forever. So you don't run your business by having tons of money in some sort of savings account that you draw from. You run your business by having lines of credit. In normal circumstances, this works for everybody so long as the rates are relatively low. Problems come when, in some distress situation, people refuse to extend your loans. This is what happens to businesses that go bust on the retail level, things like Wilco and so on. They've got various investors and banks that support them. If they go back to refinance their loans and they say, well, we think you've been running your business poorly, we don't want to refinance this loan at all, or we will do it but at prohibitive rates because now you're considered to be more risky, most of the time these businesses then shut down because they cannot afford the additional repayments. The ability to refinance, the willingness of somebody to give you the money, and the willingness to give you the money at the rates you can afford is key in you staying afloat. The amount of money you actually owe is secondary, so long as everybody is willing to give you the money. And that's why I told you uh, last week, equating state finances that are so dependent on borrowing, equating that to household finances is a ter terrifically bad idea. And it's a huge misrepresentation of what's going on. Because state, state finances are dependent on borrowing, and this is perfectly normal. It only becomes a problem if the rate of repayment becomes high. So if a government can borrow to finance its needs and it's paying 0% interest because people would just like to invest their money in that country for the long run because it's considered a safe country, why does everybody buy American Treasury bonds? Why is dollar the kind of predominant currency in the world? Because everybody would like to park their money in American dollars because it's considered a safer investment than anything else. So people are happy to lend the American government money and they don't expect any interest back because they're just happy to have somebody that, something that's guaranteed by the American government. So in many cases for developed economies, people are happy to lend them money. People are happy to give money to the Germans. Right? At some point, they had negative interest rates. So actually you needed to pay the government money in order to give them a loan. Because people were desperate to find somewhere to place their money that is going to be safe for 5, 10, 20, 50 years. There's always going to be situations where you can borrow at will and you don't have to pay any interest. So it is free money. So why would you not take advantage of this? What you need to keep an eye on is how this borrowing features in the rest of the balance of the economy because if it becomes too much you might run into trouble or you might run into situations where people get a little bit worried the difference between the interest rates is what makes or breaks an economic situation and usually we understand these things by comparison so you will think what is what is an expensive interest rate anyway? How, how can you tell? You usually compare a country that is doing well and is considered safe and people are happy to invest in with your country. So if people are happy to buy German government bonds and the interest rate for those is 0.05%. And when your country goes to borrow money 
they will borrow at 0.10, so, you know, five percentage points above the Germans, you think, oh, the difference is relatively small, so that's okay. So you use the other country that you consider to be safe to benchmark what you're doing. So the spread, as it's called, between what the Germans are doing and what the Americans are doing and you is relatively small, so that's fine. When that begins to detach, then you start getting into trouble. If the spread is 3%, you're in trouble. 35 4%, you're dead. Because then you're getting at the point that the burden of the repayment of those loans becomes so significant that it necessitates accelerating borrowing to be able to meet the debt repayments, which then makes things worse, or you need to start extracting money out of your own economy through taxes or customs charges or whatever, which then depresses economic activity, and then you get into trouble. But at that higher level, the ability to find credit is more important than the numbers themselves. So never look at numbers in isolation of the context in which these numbers are produced. Greece went bankrupt because the state debt was something like a hundred and something percent, right? Or close to a hundred percent. Japan has been running budget deficits and has been running state uh, debt to GDP ratios exceeding a hundred percent for decades and nobody has any problems with Japan. So it, the burden of the debt by itself is not the problem, is what people think about you as a country and your ability to repay and refinance those loans. Now within all of this situation, the role of law is key because the law defines what is value. And the law also defines the types of things you can trade on, the types of assets that you can have. And if the, if the law changes to prohibit certain things, it can have very severe effects on the economy and how it operates. The law says the paper notes are no longer good. If you come on holiday and you got your pocket stuffed with paper notes because this is what you had at home, you might face a situation, right? You get into the cab, you try and give this, they're not going to take it. So this happens to a lot of people who haven't, haven't traveled to the UK for the last 10 years or so, and they arrive with like lots of old 50s. So in this country, because people hardly transact with cash anyway, it's very difficult to come across big banknotes. And, and then you go, you, go through a, uh, you go through a process where the state is going to say, we're withdrawing from circulation and we're cutting some of the zeros because you got too much, right? Because after the war, where they had like instances of hyperinflation and so on, and they kept printing money, people would turn up with their wheelbarrows to collect their salary because there were just so many banks. The reason why you can have other forms of payment and other means of payment is because the law has been updated to accommodate for those. Because normally, you wouldn't have it. The, the state controls the money supply and the state controls the means of payment. So if the state issues paper banknotes or plastic banknotes or whatever it is in coins, then this is what people use to transact. People could use other things. So, you know, I can give you a bag of apples for a bag of potatoes, but this is not kind of conducive to a modern economy. It can happen on the small regional level, and that's fine, and that's not prohibited, and it can be an exchange of value that has a presence in contract law and all of that. But... If you're dealing with bigger things, like trying to pay your taxes, and the state only accepts these as payments, then it limits the amount of things you can do. 
So you do need a change in the law in what is defined as acceptable payment methods, what is defined as something having value to allow these things to happen. So the fact that now we have contactless transactions where our bank or something that contains money is represented in an electronic item that we can use, this requires both a great deal of contractual arrangements between private parties that will facilitate those transactions and the assent of the state that this is an accepted form of payment. When you have things that happen outside the limit of the state, then you run into trouble and then there is a danger. And this is what happened to us with the shadow currencies. The shadow currencies are items that are perceived to be valuable that are outside the traditional domain of what we consider money. I could, you know, grow flowers in my garden and give you guys this and you could be kind of queuing up to get them and they could become very valuable and then we give them to each other and that that's fine and it could be that i take my flowers and then i parade them along the shops in the high street and because they're so happy to have them they give me stuff so starbucks will give me a coffee uh primark is gonna give me some junk to wear uh you know i can get my bread and i exchange everything for flowers. the state is not gonna stop me from doing this this is how the original transactions with the shadow currencies came about. People were suddenly happy to exchange these things with each other or to exchange them for money in the same way that you go into the shop and you buy something. But the rest of the system didn't accept it. So even though you were happy to pay real cash to somebody to give you Bitcoin or you know, an NFT um, of, you know, like a, a pixelated image of something and you purchased this and it was yours, there was nothing to oblige the other party to accept it. Which brings us back to the, to the problem that we had with the paper notes. If people choose to do it, good for them, but you cannot force them. Because if you're happy, if you're happy to buy some sort of investment product with very low interest, that's a choice that you can make. Most of the bank accounts we have don't pay any, I mean, recently they started paying interest again because of the inflation situation, but up until very recently, most of the bank accounts didn't pay any interest. So you could leave a great deal of money in a current account in a bank and they would pay you nothing for it. If anything, you needed to pay them to have access to the service. Most savings accounts in the UK, when the interest rates were very low, they offered you 0.01 or 0.5. Meaning that you could have left £50,000 in a bank account for the entire year and you would earn £12 in interest for the entire year. Because what they were doing then, they were giving you an opportunity to place your money somewhere and you do need to place your money somewhere. It's not a great idea to have your money under the bed or to wear them in jewellery and kind of parade them around. You're going to get murdered. So the business with the shadow currency is that it, it created something that looked like normal banking from a distance, but nobody was obligated to accept these things. In certain countries, they tried to make this accepted as legal tender, meaning that you could have official payment. Venezuela, for instance, tried this as, as a way out of their exchange rate problems, or in countries where you cannot get foreign currency for a variety of reasons. They thought that might be a solution, but it doesn't work particularly well for a variety of reasons. But otherwise, here, you cannot go in a random shop and buy stuff with Bitcoin. They're not going to accept it. 
So the role of the law in all of this is key, and we cannot understand concepts of value, we cannot understand transactions, we cannot understand marketplaces by taking the state out of the equation. Ultimate conclusion to this presentation is what? That when people are telling you that markets are self-generating and natural, they are lying to you. The markets that are natural are the marketplaces in the villages where I bring potatoes and you bring apples and he brings a goat and we all kind of exchange bits of it. That's a natural marketplace. Nothing about modern financial markets is natural. Modern financial markets exist because they've got a colossal system of law and regulation behind them that supports them. And we cannot do anything without this colossal system of law and regulation. So anybody who argues for deregulation saying that these are effectively natural processes that can work themselves out, they're not correct and they probably have got some devious agenda. Now, the level at which we want the state to facilitate, protect, prevent, or do various things, this is a topic for discussion in any given society, and that's perfectly fine. But we cannot pretend that our understanding of money and value and credit and transaction is detached from the law that rests as its basis. So I think uh, students in finance departments or people doing the MBA or whatever, they should be subjected to lectures such as this, where they highlight the role of the law because most of the time the law is an afterthought. They talk about the regulation in these types of degrees uh, as a burden that is imposed upon them but they kind of fail to see the, the deep role the law has in creating these systems at the beginning. How do we know that something is a bank? I mean, perhaps, perhaps it looks obvious, perhaps it doesn't, right? The, the way all this thing started was by people starting to facilitate transactions by making small loans to people. And when this became more established, then you had the beginnings of the first banks and the beginnings of like the creation of the banking system from the kind of 16th, 17th century onwards. And this became established in the sense that entire towns or entire areas became known as centers for financing. Like the Venetians were famous for this and that's why they became so successful that not only Venice was not only a successful port and a successful meeting point as a marketplace, but also contained a lot of people who had accumulated enough wealth to be able to make loans to other people to pursue their own business. But these days, we've got a wide, very wide variety of institutions in the field of finance, so that it becomes important that we're able to define what a bank is. So, if I were to ask you the question, how do you know that something that deals with money, because a lot of things deal with money, how do you know that something that deals with money is a bank? What are the key characteristics of a bank? In order for you to figure out how best to regulate an activity, you need to be able to kind of categorize that activity first. So there's a lot of things that happen that have to do with money, but not all of it is carried out by what we perceive to be a bank. And this has been tested in the courts because Usually, when somebody operates in the domain of finance, maybe they don't want to be perceived as a bank because then that comes with a great deal of regulation behind it. 
if you're not regulated as a banking institution, then you got more freedom in the things that you do. So the uh, the courts decided when they had to kind of come up with definitions, they decided that the key characteristics of a bank is the ability to take deposits and the ability to make loans. So this is the experience of us using the banking system as a retail customers, but it's also the usual experience of commercial banking and kind of normal business banking. If you are perceived to be a bank, the relevant references here, for instance, could be the case of United Dominions Trust versus Kirkwood, which is a case from 1966, uh, where Denning, uh, who's one of the famous judges here, tried to come up with a definition and kind of battle with this idea of what is it that makes uh, banks. Many things, many entities in the finance domain will do similar things, but if you attained the classification of a bank, then this has benefits, but also has a great deal of detriment with it. The benefit is that then you have access to a bunch of regulated markets because you are in this domain and an access to a great deal of customers. But the detriment is that they don't allow you to do whatever you want with your money. The key um, way in which this is expressed is by the government telling you through the law how you need to spread your money to make yourself safe in case people ask for their money back. So how do you deal with your investments and what sort of things you can invest in and what sort of risk profiles these investments are meant to have. And then whether you can use the money from the clients to benefit yourself, whether you can simply use it to make investments on their behalf and so on. So if you're a bank, and your business is taking in deposits and making loans, you cannot use the client's money to speculate for yourself. So you cannot start betting their money for your own personal advantage. You're basically acting as their agent that you carry out activity and then the benefit is meant to come back to them. The money that you make as a banking institution comes from fees that you charge from your services or commissions. It doesn't come by saying, oh, I've got a bag of money because new deposits came in. I'm going to buy some Bitcoin and see what happens. You're not allowed to do this. And also the government will regulate how you spread the money that you received because some money will need to stay imminently accessible so that if somebody comes and asks from the ATM to get money, you have enough to give them back. There needs to be a margin of safety just in case something goes wrong and a bunch of people turn up and ask for their deposits back at the same time that you can meet this. But of course, you don't need to keep all the money instantly available. If you did that, then it would be very difficult to invest them appropriately. So after you meet those thresholds that the law sets for you, then you can expand into investing in other things that are more long term. Um, and I will explain how that happens in a moment. But the important thing is categorizing yourself as a bank will come with those consequences. If you are in the broader financial domain and you don't want those restrictions and you want to take in the client's money and perhaps bet them on something that you think is going to be very productive, then you don't want to be classed as a bank. Interestingly, during the financial crisis in the US, a lot of the investment banks that are not regulated as highly as retail banks, they asked to reclassify as normal banks so then they would be in receipt of government bailouts. 
because the government bailouts were for the traditional banking sector where people put their money and they expect to find them. So the government said, the system has gotten into trouble, we're going to bail out those banks to make sure that when somebody goes to the ATM or somebody tries to use their credit card, it still works. The rest of the finance domain is not our concern, because if a bunch of rich people invested in some sort of hedge fund or some kind of equity fund or whatever, and they, they lost their money, this doesn't really have the same everyday or systemic consequence as the normal banks. So a lot of the big banks at the time, because they were bust, because they had lost so much money, asked to reclassify as normal banks to participate in the bailout funds. So when, you know, the shit hits the fan, it's possible that somebody will opt voluntarily into the higher levels of regulation and support because otherwise they might be too exposed. Sometimes you find banks that are established in, in groups. So it is possible that you have a sort of multinational structure. Aspects of the banking system participate in the same time. That is normal, especially in the EU now within the consolidated system that you have you have banking groups that have got a great deal of operations. Subparts and subsidiary businesses that come out from major banks that do particular tasks, that have got presence in a variety of countries that perhaps would like to employ people who've got international exposure. So many of the French banks, for instance, that are present in London, they're here because they offer both retail services, but then they also offer investment services, They've got the real estate parts of the business that finance that. They've got auto loans part of the business, all sorts of things. And you only work it out when, when you see the logo. I mean, the name doesn't necessarily suggest that they're part of this big group, but the logo tends to be similar. And you're thinking, oh, okay. So that looks like the bank that I know. And when you look it up, you realize that it's part of, you find these organizational charts that have got all these kind of sub-parts of the business that participate in particular aspects of different financial markets. There, because of the regulation being nationally based, there isn't really such a thing as a truly international bank, because a banking entity cannot exist in the international domain unless it's linked to uh, a national base. But there are ways in which various banking groups link up with each other and have an international presence. So Citibank, for instance, used to be all over the world. Uh, Barclays is in a lot of places. HSBC is all over the place. So all of these will be separately incorporated and regulated by the local state in the place where they've got the registration, but they still communicate with each other to an extent. You cannot go into the Greek branch or branch of HSBC and ask to withdraw from your English account because they're going to tell you it's a different brand. It's a different bank. But there are some connections that might facilitate some of the business. You will see, for instance, that in England, we've got uh, Santander, the Spanish bank that has got operations here. But we've also got Santander UK, which is a standard UK retail bank that operates here. Now, there's some debate as to how closely can you link banks with industrial activities of a different nature. The uh, short answer is that you shouldn't, and it's a terrible idea. There are banks that have developed to service particular industries, but they're not owned by the industries. So you, you have banks that uh, specialize in oil and in the oil and gas industry or in the shipping industry that they understand the products within those markets and they can provide specialized products or insurance services or various other things for that industry. But they don't own 
the shipping companies or the petrol companies, and equally those companies do not own the banks. What would be the problem between uh, having a close connection between a particular industrial setup and a bank? The problem would be that then the incentives would be all wrong and the bank would not could not be trusted to make loans appropriately and risk assess if they are obligated by law to make those loans. That's why in a variety of countries, when you have a state bank set up to finance a particular type of activity, it was always a mess, both in the finances and in terms of transparency and operations and so on. So in Greece, we had an agricultural bank that was set up to fund agricultural activity. So political appointees in the bank were giving the money to political appointees in the various farms and you know parts of the farming industry. There was never any quality control. There was never, never any thought as to the consequences or risk management. Most of those loans went unpaid. It bankrupted the bank in the end. And because the bank was owned by the state, it impacted state finances. So this kind of socialist era type of, of arrangement where the state would set up banks to service particular industries and even worse, state-owned enterprises is a recipe for disaster. Banks work most effectively when they, can, they have independent decision-making so they can determine whether a, an, an activity or a business is a suitable one for them to make a loan to and then to use commercial tools in order to determine the terms and conditions of that loan. This gives you the highest expectation that this loan is going to be repaid and the money is not going to be lost. So close connections between bank and industry is something that was common in a great deal of developing countries. It is less common these days, and it is, in fact, a horrible, horrible idea. One of the things that has to do with the stability of the banks and the role of the state in regulating the way the banks work is this business with how much money can you actually give out in relation to the money that you take in. And the crucial thing to understand that is not uh, automatically appreciated is that the bank can actually make out more loans than the money that it takes in. You are not, if you are running a bank, you don't have to wait for somebody to come and deposit 10 pounds before you tell the business I've got 10 pounds available to give you as a loan, right? Did you guys appreciate that? Yeah. This is the whole point behind the idea of, of fractional reserve banking. This is what it, this is called. It means that the bank can actually make out multiple amounts available as loans on the basis of some amounts that it's got as deposits, but they don't need to match one by one. This is why in a modern economy, the bank, a commercial bank, a private bank, creates money in the same way that the central bank creates money. We had this discussion previously when we said that the central bank creates money just like that. Back in the day, they used to print ban bank notes and distribute them around. These days, they don't print bank notes, but they credit the account of the government or the account of a private business with money, and then they can let that loan go on indefinitely. So they credit the government's account with 
5 million pounds. This 5 million pounds didn't come from anywhere, it just got created. It's like a click of the button, and poof, the money is there. And the government can actually then use that money, which is real money, to pay its bills. And does it have to repay it back? In theory, but in practice it does not. And very similar things happen with commercial, uh, they can credit the uh, accounts of commercial businesses from the central bank account. They can do this, no problem. Private banks, when they've taken in 10 pounds as a deposit and they've made out 100 pounds as loans, they also created 90 pounds worth of value just like that at the click of a button. Is that beautiful as a concept? So liquidity is injected into the economy because the banks are given by law, right? All this is legal. They're given by law the ability to extend credit in the hope that they're going to be able to finance this in the future. Now, how much of this can you do? This is the tricky question. Because if I take in one pound and I give out 10 pounds is different than taking in one pound and giving out a hundred or a thousand. So the level at which credit is extended is significant in ensuring the stability of the system. If you allow the banks to create too much money and too much liquidity is injected in the economy that way, it tends to unbalance things. So if you don't hold enough, so both, if you create too much credit, it creates inflationary pressures the money is too easily available. A lot of people borrow them for silly stuff because they're available and then they're not able to repay, which then impacts the balance sheet of the bank. But also, if you, you don't keep enough as a buffer and you have difficulty meeting the obligations when people come in and ask for it, then you get into very serious trouble. There is one thing that can destroy an economy from one day to the next. And this one thing is people queuing outside the bank. There was a rumor that spread that the bank, this was one of the small banks, you know, here they've got a bunch of small retail banks that specialize in mortgages for people to buy houses. Uh, most of them were cooperative banks at some point in the past. And so not, not a not very spectacular business. I mean, I'm trying to think now. When you're looking for a savings product, um, you might find the smaller banks give you better rates, some Scottish banks and stuff like that, that you don't see them on the high street, but they are in places. Yeah. So Northern Rock was one of those banks, a little bit more established in the north of the country where they had bank branches and so on, a bit less in the south. There was this rumor going about that they got into trouble. This was at the initial stages of the financial crisis where there were things were starting to happen. Everybody was watching the news in the U.S. that it was very unpleasant, so people were a bit edgy. So this rumor spreads around that there's going to be issues. So suddenly everybody gets up in the morning and thinks, oh, yeah, that's it, I'm going to go get my money back. During the day, you've got all the news reporting kind of around the block, people queuing for the ATM or kind of buying all these pensioners banking on the doors and the pensioners panic very easily, right? Uh, all these pensioners banking on the, on the door to get their money. And that spooked the hell out of everybody. Because when somebody is looking at people queuing at that bank 
and they're getting the news coming from overseas that there's like a catastrophic financial crisis in the US, people are all thinking, well, maybe, maybe I should be queuing at my bank. So the government needed to intervene straight away to say, nobody move, we guarantee. So a lot of countries got into that situation one way or the other. The best way to stop this is either to say, we have a problem, we need to check what's going on, bank holiday. Everything's closed for the next couple of days till we get on top of the situation. So there's no point you guys going to queue outside the ATMs because they're not going to work. We're telling you we shut everything. You know, the prime minister goes on TV, makes an announcement, everything's shut for a few days, everybody go home. So that gives everybody a little bit of time to try and, to try and figure out what's going on. Now, practically, this isn't a great idea because then you're left with the money that you got in your pocket. So it might kind of cause issues for people's everyday life in the intermediate period. Another way of dealing with it is for the prime minister to go on TV and say, no problem, we will cover everything. So a particular bank got into trouble or a particular series of banks got into trouble or whatever. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to queue. The government is supporting the entire system. So if any of them fail, we'll do it. This is what the Irish did, because when it, the, there was a crisis in the Irish banking system, the Irish PM went on TV and said, we got it, and not up until a certain level, we guarantee all deposits 100%. It was a wonderful idea, because when he said this, they hadn't checked what the balance sheet of the bank was. <laughs> so when they, when they added together the total exposure of the banking system, this exceeded Ireland's GDP like a few times over, which immediately immediately meant that the country was bankrupt because they assumed the obligation to bail out all the banks with the totality of, of their losses, and those losses exceeded the amount of money that the government had available. And then they went to Brussels and they told the EU, we made a mistake here, press the wrong button, can you guys bail us out? So the government said, because there's a kind of financial crisis shock that is external, then we will help out and we guarantee uh, the the money of everybody, which of course you cannot do. Uh, you you can do for one bank or two or ten. You cannot do for the entire banking system if everything kind of gets into serious trouble. We will no longer be bailing out banks, and our level of support for people's private deposits is set at this, and it's not negotiable. If you lose money above this, that's your problem. So we contain our own exposure as a government, but they said we want every bank to come up essentially with a will to say, if you guys die, what happens then? And that's why all the modern uh, regulations, and this is part of what we do when we look at EU banking activities and the resolution regimes, this has been very difficult to put together, but there is actually a set of requirements that every bank has a prepared mechanism for shutting itself down in a way that protects the money of its customers and we don't have to figure out things on the go when something goes wrong. So part of all of this is that the government puts controls in um, the, the activity of fractional reserve banking. So it, there are limits to the extension of credit. So they will tell you, you can only give out X amount for every pound you get in and that's it because otherwise it will destabilize the system. They force the banks to keep their money at different places with different levels of risk. So 
a safe amount of money is always quickly available in case somebody goes and queues outside the bank and asks for their money back. So there's controls at the front end, but there's also controls at the final end if something goes wrong and you guys went out of business because it's a private business, things can go wrong, right? You made the wrong investment decisions or you just were unlucky. Then we need a pre-prepared plan as to how you're going to shut yourselves down in a way that doesn't leave people queuing up the state. So the plan is to prioritize people that have deposits and then push the burdens on to investors that are there in a professional capacity. So all of these bank resolution plans that took so long to set up after the financial crisis, what they do is that they compensate retail investors, so anybody who's got a savings account or a kind of small investment product in the bank, and everybody else who's a big investor doesn't get their money back but gets shares instead in a new entity that's been created after they restructure the thing. This is called the debt-to-equity swap. So effectively, say you lose the money that you loaned to this bank because the bank has gone kaput, but with whatever's left in terms of valuable assets, we create a new entity and now you become a new shareholder. So the people who lose out are supposed to be the shareholders of the bank because that's the risk that you take with any business. You're a shareholder in a company, the company goes bust, you lose your shares. That's the name of the game. So you have unlimited participation in the success of the business when it does well, but you have a bottom to your losses. Your losses are only the value of your shares. They're not going to come after you for more, right? The people who do business with you know this. You know this. Everybody knows this. This is a fair deal for everybody. So when a bank fails, the shareholders are wiped out. They lose. The investors lose to an extent because instead of having their money back, they get shares into something that is clearly less valuable than the something that they had before. So there's usually a significant write-off in value in having these swaps. But the people who are protected are the people least capable of withstanding the loss, which are retail investors. If I've worked 20 years and I've accumulated 50,000 pounds in the bank and you tell me tomorrow that I lost these 50,000 pounds because the bank went bust, this is catastrophic for me. It makes a change. It makes a difference to my life and my life chances. And if this happens, not just to me, but to everybody in this room and then in everybody in that room, it can actually have destabilizing effects for the whole economy. So these are the people that need to be protected. Now, if you are a big-time investor and you're telling me that out of a portfolio of five billion pounds, you lost a billion because of some shitty investment in some bank, you will live to fight another day. And it won't have, it won't have personal consequences in the same way that losing 50,000 would have for me. So that's the logic of the system.